and welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Joe Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves where this conversation takes place. Land which was never ceded, land where communities came together to eat seasonally, locally and without exhausting resources. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and rising. Today I'm talking to Tom Serafian. What an absolute treat to talk to Tom. Often described as the unofficial king of hummus, the best hummus maker in Australia, hummus expert, Tom certainly has a passion for hummus and he's put a lot of time and thought into perfecting his product. At one point in the conversation, he waxed lyrical about each of the ingredients, and I loved it. At another point in the chat, we went on a Lebanese pine nut tangent, and it was the absolute best. Obviously, Tom isn't just the hummus king. He's earned the reputation of hard-working, inspired and creative chef at all the venues he's worked at. When I spoke to Joseph Abud from Rumi and Bar Saracen a few years ago, he was quick to acknowledge Tom as a driving force in his kitchen and an absolutely beautiful cook. Diners are excited when Tom announces pop-ups, and I think we're all excited at the prospect that Tom will one day open his own place. For now, you can eat Tom's food this weekend at the Broadsheet and Free to Food event on Saturday, and of course you can buy his hummus, tum and harissa at All Are Welcome, Baker Bleu, Meatsmith and Morning Market Fitzroy in Paran. I loved this conversation and I know you will too. How are you doing? Yeah, really we go through, you know, quite quite a lot and yeah. boil them in the fresh cookers here. Yeah, of course. Um, okay. And then we blitz them in the big robo coop there. Um, it's a bit of a crazy three day sort of operation and, and yeah, that's that's kind of the first day of it. And then we chill the what we call the base of the chickpeas in the pool room. And then the third day, the next day, we um put it back into the machine with freshly squeezed lemon juice and we make a tum and Lebanese garlic sauce yep. and we add that to it. Oh, so, okay. Wow. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like a three-day process to make the hummus. It's, um, and how much like, How much does that make? How much do you make in a batch? In a batch, um, about 100 kilos. Wow. So yeah, depending on how busy we are. We make it fresh every Tuesday and Wednesday yeah. and then Thursday morning we send it out to the stockists. So we kind of get the orders in, like they'll start rolling in now over the course of Monday usually. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we never really know exactly what's going to happen and how long our days are going to be, but we're kind of flexible. So yeah, yeah, we just like get the orders in on a Monday and make it all Tuesday, Wednesday, and send it on a Thursday. That's great. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that? About two, two, it'll be two years. Yeah. Next month, actually, two years in August. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of flown by. We've been here for about a year. Okay. We were in um, a little tiny shared kitchen in um, West Footscray. Okay. For when, we, when I first started, because I just didn't know how it was going to go. We, yeah. we outgrew that pretty quickly, and that, that really 
limited the amount of um, hummus that we could make. And when we came here, we, we could really, you know, take on much more stockers that were like getting in touch and asking, like some of our biggest customers now, um, well, I was saying no to at the beginning because there was no way, you know, we could have taken on any more because yeah. that's all that we could make over there. Um, and now we've, you know, got two separate lines and very soon to them as well. And we've got Ganoush next, so. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And are great. you supplying to restaurants as well, or is it just a mart, like wholesale? Just, or just retail. To retail yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Something um, I consider doing, but um, I think the nature of the product is, it's more about quality than quantity. And for restaurants, you know, some people get in touch and then I tell them what the product, like basically what I just told you, what the product is like, the process, and, um, you know the, the price of the product as well, and um, they'll be like, "Oh, okay. I thought it was like I thought it was like all the other hummus that you can just buy in bulk, and it's quite cheap, <laughs> and you know we could put it on our menus, sort of thing." So yeah. some some bars have got on their menu. A few friends have got bars around town. There's a gin distillery cellar door around the corner from here, and they've got it on their bar snack menu. Um, and you know they're serving like small amounts, so that works. Yeah. But not your average like kebab shop who might be you know <coughs> serving. Yeah you know, big labors of it at a time, it probably wouldn't work out. Yeah. 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 And I know, well, I was going to say, I think it's a stupid question, I was say, what makes, what sets your hummus apart from everyone else? But, um, you know, I had a, a friend from Israel and he made, he claimed the best yeah. hummus and apparently it was a yeah. point of, you know, families would discuss what a good hummus was. What is it for you? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> do you want a glass of water? So? Yeah, sorry. I'm yeah. Just, yeah, um, I make like a more sort of traditional hummus, like a like authentic um, Lebanese style hummus. Okay. Um, you know, I grew up, my, my family's, uh, my dad's side of army, like Egyptian Armenians, um, oh, yeah. who Thank you know, lived in Egypt, um, you know, most of their lives, and I sort of follow those sort of styles of hummus, like like real authentic hummus. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just a lot of love. But, but mostly a lot of good quality ingredients. That's that's yeah. like it's it's all about what goes into the machine that makes the hummus. So the best chickpeas, you know, price price was not. It was never about finding, you know, the cheapest ingredients to use to manipulate them to make, um, you know, the the most cost effective hummus. It was, it was never about making money. To be honest with you. Chefs, so I'm just like crazy. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that doesn't, I don't care about making money, I just want to make the best product. So, everything from that salt is like, you know, it's really expensive salt and it's the best quality salt, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and Mount you know, Zero olive oil. Mount Zero olive oil, yeah. that's the Mount Zero pink lake salt. Um, you know, the, the paprika that we put on top, the uh, tahini that we get, um, you know, the fact that we're, we're getting. You know, fresh fresh garlic and peeling it ourselves. Like no one does that. No, no one. Like no, I like it. That, yeah, that is impressive because that's. <laughs> we, you know, we go through about twenty kilos this week. Um, wow. And this this is actually really quite quite a good size at the moment. Sometimes the garlic we get, it's like literally like like that. You know, and it takes about an hour to peel. Yeah, to peel yeah. Like yeah, we get fresh lemons that we're squeezing. Most people buy, most most companies, I guess, um, yeah, they would either be buying the peeled imported garlic, which to me is just like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And, or they'd be using garlic powder, or even just not using garlic at all. Um, and instead of freshly squeezed lemon juice, they would be buying citric acid, 
just to okay. give it a lemon powder oh, flavour, yeah. and yeah. that extends the shelf life quite a lot as well. Um, or they'll just be buying cheap and nasty pre-squeeze lemon juice, you know, like like the artificial sort of yeah, thing, yeah. And, and using that instead. Um, they wouldn't be using the extra version of olive oil that's locally produced. They'd be using like some crap, you know, oil. Um, yeah. And they all do. And when when you buy that stuff, you know, you can get a big tub for like five bucks. But um, oh, we're already on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like uh, you know, just you can taste. Like when I go and like buy a supermarket, I have for a very long time. But um, you know, the first thing I taste is like citric acid. Yeah. You know, and it's like really just like chemically uh, soundness, not, yeah. not in a good way at all. It's just, you know, quite sort of, quite off-putting. Um, and and the texture of it is pretty, pretty, you know, it's like it's sort of set firm and thick and it's not really like, like you can dip into it, I guess, but you can't really, um, you can't really use it in any other way than it's been designed to like eat straight out of the plastic tub, if that makes sense, whereas, yeah. Whereas the hummus that we make, it's it's versatile, and you can use it. You can spread it onto, um, you know, a sandwich, or you can you can put it onto a plate and dress it up like in a traditional sort of you know um, Arabic way of like putting you know fried lamb, fried nuts with butter um, on top, or you know like my version that I sometimes do in the restaurants with seafood, um, things like you know barbecued mushrooms or beetroots or pumpkins, whatever beautiful seasonal vegetables are around. Um, so you can do a lot with it, with, you know, the way that we make it in that sort of authentic Arabic style um, as well. So yeah. I saw on your Instagram that you've got lots of little um, hints and recipe ideas for using yeah. the product. So that's, yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it is to sort of, you know, uh, teach people who may not know um, the possibilities of, of these products, like hummus. You know, people in this country, I think especially, um, you know, know, like, it's, it's a fact that, you know, if you don't know, you don't know sort of thing, um, that it's just a dip, you know, yeah, something yeah. you just eat cold out of the fridge with crackers and like, there's nothing wrong with that, but it can be so much more than that. So that's something, yeah, I try to do is um, show, show the many, many uh, possibilities with it. Yeah. yeah. And I was interested <clears throat> to ask, because obviously you're really passionate about what, what you're making um, there and you're still doing some pop-ups like this weekend, the yeah. free to feed, um, Dinner. Um, do you prefer this now to working in a restaurant? Uh, <laughs> yes and no. So I'll just close the door. Yeah. It's not as noisy, but yes, yes and no. Um, sometimes it's great to have the flexibility of kind of coming in and out of like you know really busy periods. Um, but uh, I really miss having a restaurant. You know, the, re- the last restaurant I was working at, at Saracen closed, you know, with only a few weeks notice and it was pretty heartbreaking and I, I wasn't ready to, to stop cooking that food. So we, we started, you know, popping up around places. We did a substantial pop-up at Little Andorra for three or four months. Mm. Um, and yeah, I've, I've continued to cook that food and slightly, you know, experiment with some new food as well um, in, in doing these pop-ups and that's been great. Yeah. yeah, and that's been great to um, work in different people's kitchens with different teams, see how they operate, and get insight into into their businesses as well. Because um, I'm I'm trying and working towards opening my own restaurant, so wow. a big a big part of it all is that is this you know that's part of that journey. Um, and yeah, it's been really valuable to to do lots of different pop ups in different places. Um, 
and just you know get get uh, all all the you know practice and skills and, and insight into opening a business has been really great. So. That's pretty exciting, but I think that's really wise. It's a wise approach, isn't it? Because um, you know, depending on where you've worked, there can be there's ways of doing things, and it is good to get that fresh insight of how other people are running businesses or you know um, kitchens or whatever it is. Just yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It's been it's been really good, and I feel very lucky to be in that position. Uh, this is kind of like the backbone of what I do here. This is like my my Monday to Friday, yeah. you know, nine to five, if you will. And, you know, it keeps me free um, and flexible and, and quite agile to move around on, on, you know, weekends and evenings. And, um, you know, we did a few sort of residencies at places like Cumulus and Grey and Grey, um, you know, over two or three week periods. And that was, that was a push doing that because I was like here pretty early in the mornings, um, peeling lots of garlic and juicing lemons and cooking all the chickpeas, et cetera, all those things. And then heading to those restaurants in the evenings. Um, so that was that was hard work. Really good though. Don't regret that at all. Um, but yeah, it's it's when it's at its best. It's like this is like Monday to Friday, and then I'll do something like free to feed on the weekend, and slowly chip away at like that prep in the spare time during the week, and mm. you know keep it keep it really well balanced like that. Um, and that's pretty cool. That's been pretty awesome to be able to do that. To still be able to be you know have some um, work life balance and be home in the evenings. Um, spending time with my, my partner and my friends and family and doing all that kind of stuff that you don't yeah. get to do as much when you're, um, you know, stuck in a, in a kitchen, in a restaurant all day and night. So, yeah. you know, which I've been doing for, you know, almost uh, 20 years, I think. So right. it's been pretty amazing to, to stop doing that um, and, and live like this for a little while. But I still really want to open a restaurant and go back to doing that, even though it is a bit mad, um, yeah. because that's that's where my heart really is, is is being you know, in a restaurant expressing my creativity through through food. Um, that's when I'm ultimately at my happiest, and that's what I'm trying to to get to. And um, you know, I'm in no rush. I'd, I'd really like to do something sooner rather than later, of course. But um, I'm, I've been pretty patient. There's been quite a lot of you know, a bit of a roller coaster of uh, opportunities and. Um, you know, uh, different different offers that have come in to do certain things, and it's pretty exciting. And and you know, things that have come pretty close to making happen, but nothing's been um, exactly the right thing that's felt like the right thing mm-hmm. um, just yet. So I'm still looking for the perfect thing to happen, yeah. um, and I'm sure it will soon. And I'm very excited for it. So yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I was reading obviously reading about you before I came um, and I was really interested to note that you went to Elwood Secondary College with oh, yeah. my nephew who also is um, Armenian Australian oh, no Greek <laughs> he's wow. in year nine at Elwood and oh, Rafi cool. loves cooking well he I think he more prefers dressing up yeah. plates now with likes putting things together but yeah, um yeah, yeah. but yeah so <clears throat> my sister-in-law is Greek Armenian and her mum Zizi just cooks like the best food lots of kibbe and yeah. really delicious Amazing. Thing. So um, I was like, oh, that's a really, that's a cool connection. <laughs> yeah, totally. Wow, awesome. <laughs> and um, I've been wanting to speak to you because I spoke to Joseph, I think, quite a few years ago, and he spoke so highly of you then. But then I think it must have just been before all of the lockdowns and all of the things that happened. And um, yeah, so it's great to talk to you now. Yeah. Um, so thinking about you know, well, Rafi, but yeah. it sounds like from your your bio that you've always been around food and always interested in. Yes, very in much. Food or cooking, but <laughs> yeah, totally. From from a very you know young 
age, my father being a chef, my grandfather being a chef, feeling yeah. like everyone in our in our family was somewhat connected to, to food. And my mum, you know, worked in restaurants for a long time. And, um, you know, she's a gardener. So I grew up, uh, dad teaching me how to cook the food that mum would grow in the backyard and these kinds of things. So I was very lucky and um, very connected to food um, very early on. And, and I, I wasn't very interested um, in much else. And, you know, I wasn't very, uh, very good at school. Um, I was, you know, just had my heart set on becoming a chef pretty pretty early, yeah. and I was a bit sort of, um, you know, uh, yeah. Um, that was all I ever really wanted to do, basically. So, yeah. I think it's interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because quite often chefs make that comment, I wasn't good at school, and I really wanted to be a chef. But I think what you do is really complicated and, and multi-level and layered and requires a lot of... <clears throat> Um, skill and know-how and intelligence and all of those things. So I feel like um, that's a problem with school, with education, is that we're making people feel like that, like I'm no good at school, whereas there are so many pathways, and I think that's what we need to encourage people to look at that and celebrate, that there's a different way of doing things. It's not always just that linear way that, you know, schools are... I say that I am a teacher, so (laughs) I say that from that point of view as well. Um, Because... It's, and also, it's that whole thing we talk about now is that growth mindset that you need as a chef, that continuous learning and that love of learning about what you do and that passion. Yeah. I mean, more people need that. More students need that. 100%. I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I, I was definitely like that, I think. And, I, yeah, I guess um, when I say I wasn't good at school, I wasn't, I wasn't good at the, the structure that I was in. Yeah, and, totally. and the curriculum wasn't really, you know, um, just didn't feel feel right for me I was, I was you know in a bit of trouble at school I was expelled from Elwood actually and then I went to this community college for a little while and then I came back to Elwood to finish my VC um, but sort of you know just just scraped by kind of kind of style and um, then when I went to start an apprenticeship I didn't go for William Angus where everyone else was going I went to Swinburne in Pran and it was a little bit alternative in that sense that you know it was a much smaller classroom um, much more hands-on much more personal with the teachers and yeah, I had some really fantastic teachers, but they were more down to earth. You could talk to them, and I remember saying things to them like, "I don't really want to cook this, you know, really out of date French recipe <laughs> that I'm never gonna ever use again, and it just doesn't really do anything for me. Can I do this instead?" And they were like, "Yeah, okay, cool." So I ended up just you know doing like experimenting. You know, I was I was apprenticing at the Stoke House at the time, so I was there once a week, and I just I sort of used like school as a bit of a place to yeah experiment with different ideas and stuff that you know you don't get to do when you're working at a pretty busy pretty serious fine dining restaurant you're just cooking their recipes all day every day and you know you're pretty tired on your days off so it was nice to have that sort of creative freedom there that was really really good for me um but yeah like you're saying you know there's those certain styles that aren't for everyone when it comes to to teaching um a curriculum and you know yeah that was definitely more my style so yeah Without for me. Yeah. <clears throat> and so tell me about that discovery of Greg Maloof then. Yeah, okay. So that was, that was um, I was actually working at the Stoke House. And uh, one thing I really enjoyed doing, especially towards the end of my apprenticeship there, uh, was cooking a lot of staff meals. And that, that, that was another way I would, you know, um, get creative. And, you know, I used, I used to love cooking for family at home and friends on my days off. And, um, but that was cool because you're cooking for your, you know your peers, you know. And um, I, I remember buying um, stumbling across Greg's uh, Lebanese book and Syrian book, um, 
Saha and it was mind-blowing because I was seeing dishes that I'd grown up eating at my grandparents' houses on sort of special occasions um, and, you know, dishes that, that were sort of, they, they would cook like, like uh, Egyptian versions of those dishes that they sort of grew up with um, and seeing it in this sort of beautiful finessed style that the Greek has uh, whilst working and, and working towards becoming, you know, a chef who was cooking fine dining, basically. I had, like, places like Attica in my sights and, and, you know, cooking at the high level the Stokehouse was um, and still is. Uh, you know, see, anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is seeing that food, you know, styled like that um, was really inspiring. And I'd never seen it like that before. So then I went to work with Greg at Momo um, and that was a turning point for me to start mm. cooking that food you know, professionally, and then I would cook it on my days off at home as well. And, you know, I, I think I used to put my family through quite a few uh, experimental dinners that were usually served at, you know, maybe 10 p.m. <laughs> you know, I would go to the markets and I would try all this crazy stuff, David Thompson recipes, dishes that took like, you know, hours to make. Um, but anyway, when I started cooking um, more Middle Eastern uh, things at home, it felt a bit right, and I could see my family being a bit like, oh, this is actually pretty good, and not having to pretend like it was good, <laughs> so it felt, it felt right, it just felt at home for me, um, and you know, I just, I just kept going down that sort of path, and working um, with Greg and the team at Momo was amazing, and, and I was set from there, and then I followed Greg to, to London to work with him further at Peterson Nurseries, and um, I worked, you know, some other incredible restaurants over there. I was very lucky in London. Mm. Um, and then I went traveling around the Middle East. And by the time I got back to, to Melbourne a few years later, um, that was it. That was, I was just, you know, set to, to cook um, Arabic food and the very best versions of it that I possibly could. Um, I was just now, you know, I'm just obsessed with it, you know. And I love it. It's, yeah, it's so much fun. And I can see why, I mean, travelling around the countries would be really important. And obviously London seems to be a, um, still a great stepping stone or a great part of a chef's journey. Do you think it is necessary to travel as a chef? Um, <clears throat> look, it's not, you know, necessary um, as such, but it's, it's pretty amazing if you mm. have the option to do it. It's pretty eye-opening. There's so many possibilities over there. Um, you know, one of, one of the things for me was seeing different produce mm. and, you know, seeing different ways of applying techniques to those produce that you don't, you know, see as much here. Um, you know, especially at the time, like, you know, this is almost 10 years ago, I think, 10, 10 or 11 years ago. And, you know, there wasn't as much uh, variations in, in, you know, produce here. So seeing, you know, incredible things over there were, were really, yeah, inspiring. Um, so yeah, if you can do it, I definitely think you should do it for sure. Yeah, I wish I, you know, had done more and spent more time, travelled more and cooked more overseas. Um, but you can only do so much. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And how do you keep? Um, and I mean, you seem to be inspired by it at all anyway. But how do you keep inspired? Do you have? Do you look at books? Do you look at Instagram? How do you keep? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great to. Um, I've always loved cookbooks a lot, and you know, I read. That's pretty much the only kind of book that I read <laughs> is the cookbook. Um, uh, you know, for the stories and, and things as well, not just look, looking at recipes. Um, but we're so lucky. There's so many incredible cookbooks out there. Uh, I like going back in time and, and looking at old recipes rather than, rather than new techniques. I'm not so interested as much in. Um, I'm more interested in old techniques and, and, you know, 
doing things the, the long, hard, tedious ways. Um, I, I love that. I love those ancient um, methods of cookery much, much more than, than um, modern techniques have never really appealed to me at all. You know, I want to know how and why they were doing things for the first times back, you know, back in time. And, you know, I love seeing those traditions, uh, you know, still alive today. And, and, you know, things like in Lebanon, seeing and, you know, firsthand experiencing being invited to, to parties and where they were serving uh, things like kibbeneya, um, pounded in, um, you know, it's a raw lamb dish, pounded in like a marble um, water and pestle. And there was this incredible lady who was known as the, the queen of uh, kibbe. Um, and she was just sitting there just like pounding this, this, this raw lamb and adding a little bit of spice, a little bit of salt, a little bit of fat, a little bit of tum, and, um, and then like serving it to you in her hand. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I, want, I want to build a, a huge mortar and pestle when I open a restaurant. And I want to do things that way, you know, like I don't want to put in the machine and fast track and take a shortcut. I've got no interest in doing that. You know, I like doing things the hard way. Um, that's a lot of what we do here, but um, I think there's a real beauty in that and, and I'm inspired by that um, and so yeah I've come across a lot of those sort of things in, in cookbooks um, by travelling as well and, and um, yeah it, Instagram's great to see what other people are up to because you connect with people on the other side of the world um, you see their styles are maybe aligned with yours and, and you know you connect with them and talk about food with them that, that's really healthy I think mm. it's really great to do things like that um, so yeah I, I, I take inspiration from all kinds of places um, yeah and what's on the menu for... It's the Saturday, isn't it? This Saturday, yes, yeah. this Saturday. There's still a few tickets left, actually. This Saturday, the cooking class we're doing is um, sold out. And the purpose of that class is to sort of show people the, the potential and possibilities of, of things like hummus and tum and harissa. Uh, we'll be talking about those um, subjects uh, during the, the lunch as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's very much a collaboration between myself and the team at Free to Feed... Uh, I'm cooking some of my favorite dishes, uh, hummus with fried lamb, um, Lebanese pine nuts, which are kind of my new obsession. They're, I saw that on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> oh, I wish I had something here to show you this. <laughs> so actually, I've got something in the core of my show after, but um, they're, they're probably three times the length of a, um, the regular, I guess, where you, you consider a regular pine nut here. Um, and the flavor is just so much more delicate and subtle. They don't have... A, a strong sort of um, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I just don't like the flavor I can't, I'm, I'm so spoiled now that I've tried these pine nuts um, because I can't go back to the other ones <laughs> they're about six times the price I think you know you're paying for it from 100 to 130 dollars a kilo um, for the Lebanese pine nuts yeah. wow uh, yeah whereas the other ones maybe like 20 bucks or less you know you can get pretty nasty ones but they when you eat those, those cheap cheap nasty pine nuts they're they're quite just, yeah, strong and, and overpowering um, in a dish um, and are really, really off-putting for me, whereas the Lebanese ones, they're, they're so sweet and, and beautiful, like just a subtle flavour that carries so nicely through a dish. Um, Do they come from yeah. a different tree or something? There or must be different varieties. I not think just the, I sun. Think, the sun, not, the Lebanese sun. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit of that. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, the, the Mediterranean variety, they're not just Lebanese, you'll find them in, you know, areas around there um they they seem to be a different variety you know yeah, yeah they grow yeah like they're, they're huge um i think they're quite a bit softer as well oh, okay. yeah they're quite creamy when you eat them raw they're, they're quite creamy um they're, they're, they're almost like a totally different nut really when you, wow. when you put them side by side yeah yeah, yeah. And, and to fry those in butter and then add onions and then add the the lamb to that um 
and put that on top of hummus, that's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's that's the one of the starters we're doing. Uh, I'm doing shish tawuk, which is a, a Lebanese style um, charcoal chicken kebab, um, which which my touch is I actually marinate that in some uh, Persian spices like turmeric and um, ground fenugreek leaves uh, with some sort of onions and then cook that over charcoal. It's really beautiful and smoky, um, and then brush that with lots of tulm. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite um, ways to apply tulm is just brushed over charcoal chicken, um, and then we're doing a, a slow cooked. Uh, lamb shoulder with some harissa um, and the free to feed team are, are doing some beautiful mezze to, to accompany all of that um, <coughs> some nice rice and salads and, and some of their incredible desserts which I had a taste of recently and they're amazing um, and we've got Jamshid Wines who are um, a local winery uh, in, in Preston <coughs> and they're, they're fantastic their wines and they're, they're, uh, they're matching some of that to lunch as well so yeah. oh, that'd be a good day yeah. <laughs> how many people are going? Uh, there's, there's a cooking class and there's like 20 people that are coming to that um, and then lunch lunch is still a few tables available so yeah oh good <laughs> yeah, yeah it'll be fun and um, just my final question, with um, all of your experience and what you know now, what would your advice be to a person who was thinking about becoming a chef? Do it. Don't even think about it. It's an <laughs> awesome job and it's an awesome life um, to be able to cook uh, and feed people um, is, is one of the greatest gifts, I think, um, and to make a career out of that is, is a beautiful, beautiful life, I think, especially, you know, talking about travelling, um, you know, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities and a lot of doors. Uh, more more now than ever, there's a lot of different, um, you know, angles to become a chef and to go into different directions, I guess. Um, whereas, you know, there wasn't as many possibilities before, maybe. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about it to, to go for it. You know, it's hard work, but it's very rewarding. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Tom Serafian. You can check out all the goodness on Instagram at serafian.melbourne, that's S-A-R-A-F-I-A-N dot Melbourne, and at Tom Serafian. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more stories from other chefs, I'm on Instagram at Conversation with a Chef. You can read the chat at www.conversationwithachef.com and you can follow me on Apple and Spotify Spotify podcasts so I know you're there. (laughs) I would love it if you told a friend about my chats and of course, thanks again for listening today. Have a great day.